today's reading comes from Luke 23, verses 32 through 49. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the other criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds had gathered for this spectacle, and when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Father, especially after reading this passage today, I just thank you so much for what you sent your son to do for us, Lord. That he willingly died the death that we deserve, so that when you see us, Lord, instead of all of our sin, Lord, you see the perfect life that he lived. Something that we could never do on our own. I ask that you would be with Daniel as he preaches today, Lord, um, that our hearts would be open to hear what he has to say, um, and that you would just focus our minds towards what you have. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a quote from D.A. Carson's book, Scandalous, The Cross and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Attempts to make sense of the Bible that do not give prolonged thought to integrating the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are doomed to failure. At best, exercises in irrelevance. Jesus' own followers did not expect him to be crucified. They certainly did not expect him to rise again. Yet after these events, their thinking and attitudes were so transformed that they could see the sheer inevitability that Jesus would die on a cross and leave an empty tomb behind. And absolutely everything in their lives was changed. In the coming week, the minds and hearts of Christians will be focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My prayer as we contemplate these magnificent events is that like Jesus' disciples, 
everything in our lives would be changed. Next week, Kevin will be speaking about the glorious realities of the resurrection. But the task before me today is to speak upon the implications of the cross, on the implications that hang upon the brutal execution of our Savior. When we begin to contemplate the cross of Christ, one of the questions that should arise in our minds very naturally, and that has arisen in minds very naturally throughout the centuries, is why? Why did Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the Son of God, why did he have to die? Why did the only truly innocent man to ever live have to die? Why did his death have to be so brutal? Why is the cross of Christ considered good news? Last week, in my impromptu sermon on the implications of Jesus being the Messiah, I spent a few moments discussing the gospel. I told you that the word simply means good news. So anytime we talk about Jesus, we are proclaiming the good news. Yet, not all people who claim to be followers of Jesus are proclaiming the same good news, bad news scenario when they speak of Jesus. And so briefly, I want to to present to you five gospels, five good news scenarios that we often hear preached today when someone is trying to connect Jesus to someone's life. The one I mentioned to you last week is what I like to call the up and to the right gospel. Okay, this is the the familiar scene we see in boardrooms that when a guy is standing before his board, they expect that prophets are going up and to the right. And so many people preach that the central part of the good news about Jesus Christ is that if you will get connected to Jesus, if you will connect your life to him, if you will accept him into your life, your life will go up and to the right. You will find yourself healthy, wealthy, and wise. And you will be on this perpetual trajectory up and to the right where you can live your best life now. It is a way to connect Jesus to what is now seen as the common American dream. Another gospel that we often present to people is the repairman's gospel. We go to people and we say, hey, if your marriage is broken, come to Jesus and he'll fix it. If your finances are broken, come to Jesus and he'll fix it. Jesus simply gets left as a repairman who can fix all of our problems in this life. A third gospel that we often hear taught is the make you happy gospel. Sometimes it's the inner peace gospel. What Jesus exists to do for you is to make you happy, to give you a good life, to give you inner peace as you walk through your days. Sometimes the gospel gets presented as to give your life purpose, the give your life meaning and purpose gospel. We know that people are striving, they are dying for meaning and purpose in their lives. We know that many reasons that people move from job to job to job to job to job is because they are looking for meaning and purpose in their work. So a lot of times we will come alongside these people and we will say, with Jesus, you can have meaning and purpose in your life. Another gospel preached 
around the world is the power gospel. To those who are demonically oppressed around the world, who, who recognize the spiritual realities that exist in our world, they will tell you that if you come to Jesus, you can have power over the evil spirits and over the evil forces in the world. This is also connected to a social justice gospel that if you come to Jesus, you can overcome those who have oppressed you. But the issue that we take with these five Gospels being the central message of the Gospel is that this is not the Bible's Gospel. At the heart and the center of the Bible's Gospel is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It is in spite of having sinned against God, God Himself has come and He has put Himself in our place so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be justified, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be considered righteous. At the heart of the gospel message, church, we have to remember the heart of this message is our sin before a holy God. Now, if you're trying to imagine this concept in your mind, let me help you attach it to our solar system. At the center of our solar system is the sun. Everything revolves around the sun. Power and life is given through the sun. The power that is found in Christianity, true life that is found in Christianity is found in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And like our sun being the center of the universe, planets revolve around that sun. So it is not wrong to say that there is an up and to the right gospel. For many people having become Followers of Jesus Christ see their lives move up into the right. Many people see Jesus fix the broken marriage, the fix the broken child, fix their broken finances. Many people get happiness and get inner peace by being connected to God. Many people find meaning and purpose. Many people find the power to live a divine and godly life in their connection to Jesus Christ. But like the planets that revolve around the sun, you have to understand they are not the center and the heart of the gospel. So when we go with this gospel into the world, when we carry it in our lives and we proclaim the excellencies of Christ to other people in the world, we must always remember that at the heart of the gospel is our sin before a holy God. That the number one issue in your life is not your lack of finances, it's not your lack of smarts in class, it's not your lack of opportunity, it's not the home you grew up in, it's not some patriarchal system that has treated you unfairly, it's not that you are single, it's not that you aren't smart enough, it's not that you aren't pretty enough, it's not that you haven't found purpose and meaning in your life. The number one issue facing every human being's life from the moment they are born is their sin before a holy God. This brings us to the first implication of the cross of Christ. Now let me say to you, I am going to attempt to get through many implications this morning. 
However, only being given one sermon to exhaust all the implications of the cross of Christ in our lives is an impossible task. You can easily find up to 25 implications on the internet. If you just type that in, implications of the cross, you can easily get 25 right in the first 10 selections in your Google newsfeed. I'm going to get through as many as your bladders will allow me to get through today, okay? Number one implication of the cross of Christ, sin is highly offensive to God and deserving of His wrath. God hates sin. He has an utter disdain for it. One sin was enough to get Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, to have the curse of death pronounced upon the earth, them and all who would come after them. Have you ever just sat and wrestled with that fact and with that issue? That here you have perfect, perfect humanity and perfect relationship with God, Adam and Eve without sin. God, in His uh, you know, abundance, you, you, and, and I know this may make God seem hard, but just think about it. God created the world and told humans, like, have at it. Like, the whole thing is yours to roam, to play, to work, and to multiply. I mean, the entire world was theirs. But yet, there's one tree. Out of all of the entire earth, there's one tree, and God says, Stay away from that tree and don't eat of its fruit. Now see, that is not a God who is restrictive and oppressive. It is a God who has given unlimited freedom to explore His world. But yet, Adam and Eve fall to temptation. They fall to temptation of Satan. And in that falling, what, what, what honestly, let, let's, just, let's be honest, if someone sinned against you in that way, like if you said, hey, don't eat of that fruit over there because it's bad for you and someone did it, you wouldn't be that offended, would you? You wouldn't be that bothered if someone ate a piece of fruit off a tree that you told them not to. But yet, God was so offended by this act that he then pronounces the curse of death upon them. He removes them from the garden. And now creation is under a curse, as Paul describes it. And the whole earth is groaning to be liberated under this curse. So apparently, this one sin is a really big deal to a holy God. Now, our minds still have trouble grasping this concept and the seriousness of this sin. So let me give you this illustration to see if it might help you from here and into the future. Let's take a simple act of punching another human being in the face. Now let's just imagine right now, I, I've got Taylor up here, and Taylor's sitting here all nice and innocent, and I know Taylor really well. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm just, you know, I need to take out some frustration because yesterday was a hard day for some reason. And I just go, I just pop Taylor right in the nose. Now, most likely what's going to happen is Taylor's going to punch back. We're going to scrap it out. You guys are going to break it up. And that might be the end of the whole thing. Now, let's imagine a different scenario that when I was at the spring football game yesterday, I saw an officer of the law in his uniform and I said, you know what? I don't like the way that guy looks. And I decide to walk up to that guy and punch him in the nose. What happens? Where am I going? I'm going to jail, right? 
Now let's take a third scenario that somehow I got into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and got up to the, the crown prince and I decided that I didn't like the way he looked either and I went to punch him in the nose. What's going to happen? Execution right there on the spot. Nobody's going to ask me why in the world I did that. Now, in all three of those scenarios, the act was the exact same. A punch to the nose. But in all three scenarios, the consequences for those actions greatly differed. And what is it that makes those scenarios different? It is the authority and uh, it's, it's the authority of that person. Taylor is just a human being. One guy is an officer of the law. One is the crown prince of his entire country. How much higher and holier is the Lord our God that, that, that we should not be surprised that he is so offended by sin, that in his holiness, that in his righteousness, that in his purity, that he upon one sin by humanity could perpetually curse humanity and perpetually curse the earth. This one thing shows us God's utter disdain for sin. And see, in case you're confused what sin is, the word actually is just, it's an archery term that means to miss the mark. But where we so often miss the mark, where Adam and Eve miss the mark and where you and I miss the mark is that where God says that he is to be the center of our universe. He is to be the sun around which everything revolves. If you look at his first commandment in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Sin, first and foremost, is you and I putting ourselves at the center of the universe. That, that God, we don't care what you said about something. We are now going to do our own thing the way that we see fit to do it because you have given us the freedom to do so. And when we put anything at the center of our lives, our selfish desires, sex, money, materialism, pride, and on and on and on we could go, we are de-godding God. We are removing God from his rightful place upon the throne of our lives. We are setting him aside and we are saying to him, Hey, I've got this. I want to be in charge now. I want to do what I want to do. And to this, Paul tells us in Romans 1.25, as I have paraphrased it up on the screen, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God's great condemnation to us is that we continually serve the creature rather than the creator. Than the creator. Now, so far, all I've mentioned is that God is highly offended by our sin. But I haven't yet connected it to the cross of Christ. And I think this is something that, that, that when we think about the cross, you, you need to make sure that in the back of your mind, you, you understand and you connect to the crucifixion of Christ how offended God is by sin. And I think so often... In our day, we, we, our, our reaction toward the cross is, is way too stoic. 
We can think about the cross and we can consider the cross and we contemplate the cross, but yet our, our emotions are not moved in, in light of thinking about the cross. Now, when you think about the cross, there's really kind of two aspects you can think of it. There, there's a beautiful part of the cross and there's a brutal part of the cross. There, there, there's beautiful for what it does for us, what it does to us, what it promises to us, but there's a brutal aspect of the cross as well that, that we, as, as modern day society and Christians, we, we just don't grasp what it is that is being portrayed to us in the scriptures. We do not understand how brutal this act actually was. And, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to bang on you wearing jewelry and a cross, but, because, but so often when we see a cross painted in gold, when we, when we see a cross adorned and, and, we, and we have it up, it's hard for us to grasp the brutal reality of what this torture device actually was. I mean, the, the word crucifixion is from where we get our word excruciating. The cross was so brutal and so horrible, they had to invent a word for it. That is where our word excruciating comes from. It was a brand new word invented in Jesus' day because it was so horrible and so horrific that there was nothing else under the sun that could be used to describe it. If you have never seen the passion of the Christ, I don't know how many years ago that came out, but if you have never seen that movie, I would encourage you this week to sit down and to watch The Passion of the Christ. It is one of the most gut-wrenching movies you will ever see. And I will say, in that movie, they do as good a job as I have ever seen depicting what Jesus' death was like. See, we, we read in the scriptures that Jesus was beat with the cat of nail, the cat, the cat of nine tails, 39 times. But, but, but do you actually understand and know that the Romans were so adept at killing people that they, the, the executioner knew just how hard to hit you, how many times to hit you, that he would kill you on the 40th lash? This was not just some, like, leather belt. You know, I, and again, I was a boy raised in Alabama whose daddy was very fond of the leather belt. So it's not just some, like, leather whip to hit you. That sewn into this was metal balls. It was sewn into this was bone that when it hit, it would grab into your skin and literally rip the skin from your flesh. That by the time it got to the 40th lash, that your internal organs were many times exposed bones were exposed and and they did not not only did this across the back but they would go up and down the entire body front and back and so if, if you ever look like the picture here this is one of the scenes from uh, the passion of the christ i mean you can see where the cat of nine tails had gone all up and down jesus body but I, but i want to tell you even as brutal as this scene may may, may depict this the the wounds were much deeper there's a reason the executioner stopped at 39 times. So not only in this condition was our Savior taken to the cross, but he is taken to experience the most brutal, 
longest lasting death that the Romans could imagine. Now, now let me just say this for a little bit of Bible prophecy. David in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus takes on flesh and comes on the scene, talks about the crucifixion. That the Savior would be crucified. Just so that you know, crucifixion had not even been in, um, invented as an art form of death yet. It was a whole other th- uh, 500 years before the Persians would even invent crucifixion. So if you want to know if the Bible is true and that God knows what he's talking about and, and can tell us things ahead of time, 500 years before it's even invented in the world, David speaks to exactly how Jesus would die. And so for 500 years, this torture device had been perfected, and the Romans got it right. Because what dying upon the cross, as it's so often depicted to us, is Jesus up on the cross, and we think he's just, his body is just finally given out through the piercings. And the piercings were brutal, because you were pierced through the top of your feet, and you were also pierced right here into your wrist. Do you want to know why they pierced you right here? You ever hit that thing called a funny bone? It's not very funny, is it? The most painful nerve in the body runs right there. There's a reason they pierce these guys right in the wrist. Because it would extract the maximum amount of pain from them. This wasn't done by happenstance. But let me say, that's not the brutal part of being crucified on a cross. The brutal part about being crucified on a cross is that you actually die from asphyxiation. You you notice up there in the picture that Jesus is kind of hanging in this position. Well, the problem is when you're hanging like this, you, you, you can't get oxygen to your lungs. So the only way to get oxygen to your lungs is to what? Is to stand up. Well, what are you standing up against? That spike between your feet. So most people died through some combination of blood loss, asphyxiation, exposure to the elements, but many times the crucifixion could last days. It could last up to a week of you hanging on a cross. And not only are you hanging on a cross exposed to the elements, but it was done in a very public place. It was done on a main road where everybody walked for everybody to see to make you an example. So since it was only considered for the very worst of criminals... People would mock you and jeer at you and spit at you and throw things at you. So in this way, this is how Jesus suffers and dies in our place. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that Jesus did not die as some little old man having lived a good long life. He died in the most horrific way that humanity had invented and perfected to inflict the greatest amount of pain amongst its recipients as possible. This wasn't done by happenstance, but with great purpose and intention by God to show the vile offensiveness of our sin before a holy God. This is the brutal bad news of the cross. To this brutal bad news, we now get to turn to the beautiful, most amazing good news in all the world. That upon that cross, for the Christian, 
Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. The wrath that was due you and me. Jesus drank every last drop. Every ounce of God's wrath was poured out on him so that you and I could be set free. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, to you who are followers of Jesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of God, this is wonderful news for us. For the wrath that was upon us was absorbed fully and totally and completely by Jesus Christ. But let me say to you, this is just the beginning of the good news surrounding Christ's crucifixion. Because the crucifixion for us who are followers of Jesus doesn't just remove the wrath of God. It doesn't just reset us back to a neutral position where we now have to try and avoid being put back in a position of wrath or work toward a positive position where God bestows His favor and blessing upon us. No, 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 no. For those whom Christ has died have now been put in a personal, perpetual, and perfect position before God. Guys, this is insane good news. This is overwhelming, amazing, wonderful news. You will not hear anything better than this. I don't care if someone told you they were going to give you all A's for the rest of your career here at the University of Florida. If they were going to give you a guaranteed six-figure job, give you the prettiest spouse, give you the most wonderful kids, a nice house on the beach, a car, all the, all the great and wonderful things that this life has to offer, no thing you will ever hear in your life is better than that good news. And see, you, you have to follow this argument. If you ever want to follow it logically, just go read the first three chapters of Romans. Because in Romans 1, Paul declares that we have all turned to worship the creature rather than the creator, as I have already mentioned. And then when he goes into chapter 2, he says that having, now having declared and shown that God is right in judging his rebellious creatures, he shows that no one is righteous. He says that, look, no matter how much you try to obey the law, no matter how many good deeds you try to exhibit and do in this world to overcome your separation from God, there is no one who is good. No, there is no one who is righteous. And he lays the whole world under condemnation. But in that, he then turns to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And if you want to know the heart of the gospel, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, it is found in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. For the heart of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ is this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so implication number three that I will share with you this morning of the cross of Christ is that God is just the justifier, and I am justified. One of the issues that people wrestle with, and I'm sure you've wrestled with this at some point if you've given serious thought to Jesus, but one of the problems that the world has with Jesus and with God and our message, especially the bad news, is that it just seems so unfair that God would punish us and punish us eternally. And there is this belief, well, because I'm a good person and I've done good things, God is just going to overlook my bad deeds. Now, you know, when we're just thinking about it in our self-centered selves, That's what one might hope. But just think about how offended we get when someone cuts us off in traffic. Right? Think about if if someone came in and, and, and stole from you. Someone beat you up, put you in the hospital, broke a litany number of your bones, and they went and stood before a judge and they were declared not guilty. And it's like, oh, well, you know, because the other 20-something years of their life, they were a pretty good person, so I'm not going to punish them for this sin in any way. It it becomes utter lunacy when when we try to look at this and we say and, and actually believe that God as a just moral being could just overlook the grievousness of sin. We, as human beings, demand justice. Though we may not agree with what that is, if you listen to the political sphere, you know that people are demanding justice. We have a whole big thing out there, social justice. Why? Because people believe they have been wrong and they are demanding justice. The one who has the right to demand justice more than anyone else is God. And it would be inconsistent with His character to overlook sin without justification being made. And the beauty of the gospel is that God is just in His dealing with Jesus Christ because He found one, there is one, who has satisfied the debt, who has satisfied and paid the penalty on our behalf. And in that, God Himself is the justifier, for God Himself came and took on flesh to die in our place. Do not lose sight of the fact that the one who is so offended 
by our sin is the one who is willing to come and to pay the penalty that we so rightly deserve. God is just. He is the justifier and I am justified. If you are a child of the king, you are justified. You stand in a personal, perfect, and perpetual relationship with God of being justified. If you've, if you've never gone to Zechariah chapter 3, if you've never gone to this scene where Joshua the high priest is brought up before God and Satan is standing there accusing him, to when God actually comes alongside Joshua. There's one from the outside, this pre-incarnate Christ. He comes alongside Joshua and he looks Satan dead in the eyes and he says to Satan, shut your mouth. Is this not one that I have plucked from the fire? Is this not one that I have made righteous? Take him away and put a robe on him, a robe of white, a clean turban. For I have declared him clean, Satan, for his name means accuser, and you are allowed to accuse him no longer. Because he is permanently justified in my sight. In Christ, God is just. Christ came to justify us. And now, for us who are followers of Jesus, we have been justified. And we will forever stand as in a state of perpetual justification because Christ has died for our sin. Maybe you caught a big word in this passage that you've never heard before propitiation. This sounds like a big theological word. It is. You came to school to learn, and I'm about to educate you. It's a wonderful, fabulous word. It is a loaded word. It is a word that you want to know. It is a word you want to learn and you want to get into the deepest part of your soul because I can guarantee you by not knowing this concept and this word and this word, you are plagued by a certain struggle of believing that you have to please God. That you believe that when you mess up in some way, shape, or form, you've now got to do something to make up for the wrong thing that you've done. And when you do this, when you fall into this stinking thinking, it is because you do not understand and have not dwelt in and dove deep into the wonderful grace of the concept of propitiation. And the word simply means to make one favorable. Think about this. Think about, um, typically you will see this in, a, in an Asian restaurant that you go into, and when you go in the front door, you will see a little statue, and in front of that statue will be a little offering of food, and will be some incense. You, have you all seen this? Okay, so you need to understand that is the doctrine of propitiation right before your eyes every time you go into one of those restaurants. Because they are offering that sacrifice to that God, to that deity, so that that deity 
will give them a favorable result. So that deity will look favorably upon them and do good for them on their behalf. They are wanting this deity, this statue, to be propitious toward them. But see, the good and great and wonderful news that as we are in this state of permanent justification before God, it says in verse 25 that Christ was put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you receive it by any good thing that you do? No, you receive it totally by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. You are in a a position of permanent favorableness toward God. And the best way to explain this is through looking through children. One, one, one day you will get this. One day when you have children, you will understand that even though they can drive you crazy and at sometimes you wish someone would take them and not bring them back for many hours at a time, you have this incredible love for them and you're, you are always favorably inclined toward them. And weirdly so, though they may get on your nerves more than anyone else in the world, you are still more favorably inclined toward those little rugrats than all the other rugrats of the world. Why? Because as your children, they are always permanently favorable in your eyes. In the same way, having been made children of God, we are now permanently favorable in His eyes, not because we're cute, cuddly, and sweet, but only because of the brutal execution of our Savior. And let me, un- let me also give you kind of a point B why this doctrine of propitiation is so important. Because there is a verse in Scripture that is so abused and misused in our culture that every time I, I hear it, it-, it, just- it literally turns my stomach and makes me sick. You will hear people say to you all the time, God is love. God is love. God is love. Are those three words in the Bible strung together in a passage? Amen, absolutely, 100%. But let me tell you, the context in which it is used in the Bible is in no way, shape, or form connected to the relationships that we choose to have. It is not of a social, political agenda in any way, shape, or form. You need to understand and you need to know for the rest of your life when you hear someone say God is love, if you want a great evangelism opportunity, this is it. I 100% absolutely agree with you. Let's talk about it. Because look what the Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, 7-10, through 10, where the word propitiation is directly connected to the phrase God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But notice what immediately follows God's picture of love. When it is stating that God is love, it is directly connected to the cross of Christ. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when someone uses God as love as a justification to to do whatever they want with 
their relationships in this life understand that they have no idea what the Bible is talking about when it is using this phrase. Because they are directly quoting the Bible. But what they are directly quoting is in direct connection to the fact that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And so when the Bible says God is love, it speaks to one primary central issue. The brutal murder of Jesus Christ to atone for our sins. So when you hear someone say God is love, you get to say amen and yes, let's have a conversation about that. Because you are absolutely right in what you are saying. Because I'm telling you, most people have no idea where this comes from. Just ask them, hey, I totally agree with you. Can I sit down and show you that I, that, that I 100% agree with you and show you what the Bible means? And you can connect them to this passage right here. This is an incredible opportunity to connect the gospel, to connect Jesus to someone's life who's quoting Scripture and just needs to be shown what the Scriptures actually say. Does Paul not say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? In Romans 10. See, there are opportunities all around when the world misquotes Scripture for us to step in with the beautiful truth of Scripture and to tell someone how their sins can be permanently and perpetually and perfectly forgiven in Jesus Christ. And that is through His propitiation. So let me say this to you. I know that some of you come in here with a list or, or you come in here with a big sin on your heart. Maybe you're coming in here today with a big series of sins on your heart and on your life. And you might be prone to ask yourself today or some other day when you find yourself in this situation to say, how can God still love me? Oh no, child, because of Christ, what you should say is, how could God not love me? Because in Christ, there is no way that he could not love me. Because you are forever propitious in his mind and in his heart. A fifth implication. Got another big word for you. Expiation. Propitiation. Expiation. Not quite the same thing to to grasp this idea of expiation i understand that when we it is connected to words we regularly see in the bible or hear talked about such as atonement cleansing and a purifying fountain that washes away our defilement the following verses illustrate my point well that even though you are dirty you you can be cleansed for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Leviticus 16.30 Jeremiah 33.8 I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Child of God, know that on the cross Jesus dealt with the sin that has stained your soul. 
But not only did he deal with the sin that stained your soul, he both forgave your sins at the cross and cleanses you from all sins that you have committed and that have been committed against you. See, it is not just dealing with the sins that we commit. For we know that many times the stain upon our souls and the shame that we feel in this life and what has been done to us. And through the doctrine of expiation, our shame is removed. If you are here and you have a child of God, if you are experiencing even one ounce of shame for something in your past or for something that has been done to you, or either you've done in your past or something done to you, you no longer have to carry that because God has already cleansed you of that shame. On the cross over 2,000 years ago, Jesus wiped away your shame. Your sin is taken away. Church, there are so many things that we could talk about. And these implications, I haven't even covered Christus Victor. Christ being our victory in this life. I'm not even going to have a chance to talk about redemption. Jesus buying us back. Jesus being our new covenant sacrifice. Jesus being our ransom. Jesus being our revelation. There are so many implications of the cross of Christ that if we would dive into, if we would pull out all of the beautiful truths of Scripture and beg God to apply them to our hearts, we could find that we are living lives that are radically different and radically changed. For on the cross of Christ, implication number six that I'll share with you is Christ's righteousness see uh, a lot of people when they think about the cross of christ they, they, they think about being forgiven of your sin but but let, let, let me say to you if you are just forgiven of your sin that doesn't actually get you into heaven just having your sin forgiven doesn't get you into heaven before to be in God's presence, one must possess perfect righteousness. And you need to understand that on that cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares this amazing and beautiful, beautiful truth to us. For our sake, children of God, the Father made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We call this the great exchange. If you're familiar with the gospel story and the crucifixion story, don't lose sight of the fact of that guy named Barabbas. The one who was scheduled to die. That Pontius Pilate, in trying to alleviate his own guilt and try to get out of this sticky situation, says, there's no way they will, they'll crucify this Jesus guy over this vile, horrible sinner Barabbas, this insurrectionist. So I'll put these two up there, and of course they're going to let Barabbas go free. But in that, 
what does the crowd shout? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Set Barabbas go. Church, it is in that picture that we see what we call the great exchange. That the one who deserved to die was Barabbas. And Jesus goes and he stands in his place. We are Barabbas. Jesus has exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. You now stand right before God. You never have to do anything to be made right before God. For Jesus took care of that on the cross. The last implication for followers of Jesus that I will share to you with you today is this. Reconciliation. You have been reconciled to the Lord your God. Not in some way that God is only transcendent standing over your life, but in a way that now God is now imminent and present and close to you. That He has been reconciled to you in a relationship. And maybe at some point in your life you have been in a fight or an argument and you have experienced separation from another human being and it is only one who have experienced the pain of separation that can understand the joy that reconciliation brings when a relationship seeming irre irreparably broken has been reconciled and brought back together it is to this that paul speaks Summing up so much of what I've, been, I've said today in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We now, like John 15 talks about, have the ability to abide in the vine. That the life of Christ can flow through us in all that we say. We have been forever connected and united to God. We have been reconciled. Our sin put us at enmity with God. It made us God's enemy. And God did all the work on our behalf to reconcile us to Himself. And so often when we hear this, we rejoice. Like I saw people rejoice at the spring A-Day game when a touchdown was scored yesterday. Yay. Good job, Felipe. 
when how we should rejoice is when like Felipe threw that Hail Mary against Tennessee in the end zone. Go to that moment in your mind. How did you rejoice when you saw that ball launch through the air and say, oh dear Jesus, please just this one time, if he will catch that touchdown, I will go to church for the rest of my life. I will do all the good things you want me to do, Lord Jesus. My life is yours. Please, 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 please. I did that with the Jeep Wrangler once in high school, and I got it. I broke my promise. But you think of the rejoicing that went on in that stadium when that Hail Mary connected with that guy's hands and that referee raised his hands to signal touchdown. When the game was finished and victory was declared in that one moment, your rejoicing was overwhelming and could not be contained, church. Why? Because you saw the significance of what had happened. Yesterday's touchdowns were of no significance whatsoever. It was very apparent. <laughs> very apparent. But let me say, yesterday was my first time ever going into the stadium where any kind of activity was taking place. Imagine if your first exposure to American football was yesterday. Like how pitiful. <laughs> like how sad that these fans were. Like, this is not sport. This is not fun. This is not entertaining. You guys don't care at all. But yet if they walked in for the first time ever in the fall against LSU, against Georgia, when the stakes were high and the stakes were serious and a touchdown was scored, alleviating decades of misery in some cases, <laughs> is not the rejoicing great and overwhelming. So how do you respond to this? How can you rejoice? See, the, the, the issue is not, it's not this thing where, where I have to go do all these things. It's like, no, 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 all these things have been done for me. The one thing has been done for me. And in light of the greatest victory in the entire world, no, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how difficult life may be, no matter the hard things that might make you question where, 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 where Jesus is actually worth it, no matter how hard or difficult life is from this day forward until God calls you home, You can rejoice because the greatest issue in your life has been dealt with. Your sin has been dealt with. Let me say one final thing to those who are not followers of Jesus. This message may not make a lot of sense to you, and it, it, you may have a hard time grasping the concepts. Everything I've said to you today can be true if you surrender your life to God. If you get on your knee before Him and you confess Him as King of kings and Lord of lords and you repent of your sin and you turn from that and you decide to take up your cross... But you need to understand one thing, and I understand 
this is not the message you maybe wanted to hear, but you need to know that the wrath of God still remains upon you. It is a real and true thing. For in John chapter 3, verse 36, the scriptures declare this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you come to Christ, that wrath can be absolutely removed. And I know so often Jesus gets talked about in very light fashion. He gets put up as a pretty boy, as a nice guy, welcoming the children. He's always nice and proper. Understand this, that the first time Jesus came, he comes as the lamb to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But to those of you who are not saved, please understand what one day will be poured, upon, poured out upon the earth. And church, may you take this seriously in your efforts to share Christ with people. For the scriptures declare to us that one day when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation at the close of the age, John said he saw this from Jesus. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophets who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest the rest of humanity were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Understand when we think about the gospel, we must hold in one hand the brutal wrath of God poured out upon Christ and that will be poured upon those 
who continually refuse him, who continually choose to put themselves at the center of their own universe. And we must hold it in tension with the beautiful, good news of the cross. For the reason you can rejoice, according to Romans 5, is because you have been spared what the enemies of God will suffer on that day when Jesus returns as the Lion of Judah. For one day, Jesus will return on that horse to wipe out all of his enemies. That news is brutal. So may we rejoice in having being saved. But yet, if you are not saved, if you have not come to Christ, may you fall on your face before him and worship him before the, of his day of his wrath is poured out upon the world. It is with that that I will invite the band back up. For you who are children of the King, for you of whom your sins have been atoned for, you've been cleansed, Christ has made propitiation and expiation on your behalf, you are declared the righteousness of God before, before you come and take communion this morning, as he plays, as the band plays, how deep the Father's love for us. I want you to take to a moment and be thankful and rejoice in your own heart and in your own soul what it is Christ has done for you, the truth that I have exposited for you today from God's Word. For you who, who are not yet followers of Jesus, if you have any doubt or, or question about this, I'm going to ask uh, Stephen if he'll come up, one of the elders of the church, and I'm going to ask Kevin, uh, one of, the, one of the, the pastor, lead pastor here to come up, and I'll be up here as well. Leah, I'll ask you, and I'll ask Caitlin as well. Jackie, if you'll come up. If just any of you want to talk about this, just come and just kind of Grab us as you're going by up here, and we'll just, we just want to have a discussion with you. And, and maybe it's just a follow-up meeting. Uh, we'll even pay for your coffee during the week, okay? Um, but, but settle this. Life's most important issue rests on the cross, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Nothing is more important than dealing with this issue. So for the Christian, rejoice and be thankful. For you who are not, ask God for his wrath to pass upon you and come and talk to us so that we can help you understand what it means to enter into reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ.
father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory